Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn again to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, we've had a couple of weeks away from our study on the Sermon on the Mount, but we're back uh, for three weeks. (laughs) Uh, We'll be here uh, for the next three Sundays, which includes this morning. And then obviously we'll, we'll take a break for Advent. Uh, we'll be in, in, still in Matthew, but in chapters 1 and 2 uh, for our Advent series. And then in the new year, uh, I'm going to do a brief series on worship. Uh, if you remember, every year we have a different uh, ministry emphasis for the year. In 2024, our emphasis is worship. Uh, so we're going to do a, a three or four part, haven't decided yet, uh, series just on, on worship. What does worship mean? Obviously, we know it's important, but, but let's get into the details of it. So We'll do a, a brief series on worship, and then in February, back into Sermon on the Mount, which we won't leave until we're finished, and we'll, we'll finish that sometime in the month of May, uh, but that's what's coming. Christ, the law, and the Christian life. Uh, this is a little bit of a, of a transition passage here. Anytime you're a preacher or a public speaker, transitions are very important. Uh, it's, a, it's the most underrated part of public speaking. How do you transition from one point to the next, from one idea to the next? It needs to be smooth and not clunky. Uh, at least that's what you want it to be. And Jesus is transitioning here. He's left the Beatitudes, which is the introduction, uh, these kingdom blessings. This is who we are. These are the indicatives, if you will, of the gospel. And now he's about to go into all the requirements of disciples. But verses 13 through 20 serve as this transition. As we looked a couple weeks ago, uh, 13 through 16, a little bit of a summary statement of the Beatitudes when Jesus tells them in the final Beatitude, you're going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. You're going to be reviled for the things that you believe. Well, how then are we to respond to that? Are we to be jerks in return? Of course not. We're to be salt and light. We are to love even though we're hated. We are to scatter the seed and to be salty and to permeate the culture and to shine the light of the good works into the world. Well, how then do we go now to all these, you've heard it was said, but I say, these kingdom requirements? Well, we've got to pass through first the work of Christ. Christ has fulfilled the law in Himself. And in the sermon, we'll talk about all the ways that Christ has done that. But before we can sort of bring these blessings, this law and gospel, and hook them together, how do we hook them together? We hook them together in Jesus. With those things in mind, let me read for us. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you would teach us now from your word. Lord, that we would behold wondrous things from it. Would you write these truths upon our heart? Lord, that we would see your law as something that is wonderful. As the psalmist says, that we would delight in it. Because in us, you continue to fulfill the law. Lord, we thank you for all of your work on our behalf. We thank you for paying the penalty for sin. We thank you for being perfect 
as you lived on this earth. All of that is for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I was on staff at First Presbyterian Church in Macon, Georgia, I, over a nine-month period, I had three different people pass out while I was preaching. Three different occasions in a nine-month period. The first time, it was a young woman who was pregnant. She got up to excuse herself from the middle of the service, and as she was walking down the aisle, bam, hit the floor. Lauren, my wife, was right next to her, jumped up and cared for her. She was completely fine. A few months later, an older gentleman sitting about right over there in my mind's eye, he passes out in the middle of the service. We had to go to the back and charge the defibrillator, thinking, oh dear, this might be it for this man. It wasn't. He was okay, rushed to the hospital, and everything was fine. The third time, and I think I've told you this story before, I was doing a, a, a wedding, and the brother of the bride, this big old tall 6'5 guy, he fell over like a tree, just face first, wham. <laughs> He locked the knees, as of course you're not supposed to. Now, of course, I wanted to make sure everyone was okay, but when you're the preacher in that, in that scenario, how in the world do you transition back into your sermon? There is no good way to do that, because you know from that point forward, no one's going to listen to a word that you say from then on. They're thinking to themselves, what? I can't believe this just happened. I wonder if this person is okay. You know, you, you're, your mind is gone, <laughs> And the preacher, you're trying to bring it back together, but you're also thinking about what just happened, and oh my goodness, I can't believe that. It's sort of like Paul in Acts chapter 20. You know, he's preaching in the house, and Eutychus, the young man, is sitting in the windowsill, and Paul's been preaching for a really long time, and Eutychus falls asleep, and he falls out the third-story window to his death. Paul goes down there. He raises him from the dead. They all eat a meal, and Paul keeps on teaching. (laughs) Uh, How do you... How do you transition back into the message at that point when everybody's thinking to themselves, I can't believe what just happened? Now, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, as far as we know, nothing unusual like that has happened, and yet his transition here is of equal importance. He's just communicated to them, these are all the blessings that you have, those who mourn, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, those who are poor in spirit. And now he's going to tell them, here's how I want you to live. Here are my kingdom expectations for you. How do we bring those together? I'm condemned before the law, and yet I am saved by grace. I am am free of the penalty of sin, and yet I am still required to live as God instructs me. How do I bring this understanding together? And what does Jesus say? You look to me. I show you how to do that. You trust in me, this wonderful doctrine that we talk about from time to time, union with Christ. The reason that I don't have to fear condemnation is because I'm in Christ. The reason I'm able to obey what the law commands, I'm in Christ. And he gives me the motivation and ability to do all that he says. Is this something that we grow in over time? Of course it is. It's a long obedience in the same direction as we often say here. Two things to look at, one that leads to the next, the Christ and the law, and then secondly, the Christian and the law. For us to understand our new relationship to the law, we first need to understand how did Christ relate to the law, and what did He teach about it? Well, He he shows us much in this passage. So number one, it's Christ and the law. If you remember, I don't expect you to, but maybe you do, 
from the first sermon in the series on the Sermon on the Mount, I talked a lot about the relationship between Jesus and Moses. And that's important here because the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of, look, you're disagreeing with Moses. You're disagreeing with the, with the law and the prophets. Jesus is not, but that's what he's being accused of. And how often does, does Matthew and his gospel show the relationship between Jesus and Moses? He does it a lot. He's showing us the ministry of Moses was actually pointing us to Jesus. So sometimes in, in, in theological world, we talk about Jesus being a better Moses, being a fuller expression of what a deliverer would be or what a, a giver of the law would be, because there is a lot of relationship there. Moses was the deliverer of God's people out of slavery and bondage in Egypt. Jesus is the better deliverer, isn't he? of his people out of the slavery and bondage of sin. Moses interceded for his people, didn't he? he? He begged God not to punish them because of their sin. Jesus continually, perfectly intercedes for his people, doesn't he? Even now, before the throne of grace. Moses climbed a mountain and did what? He received the law from God. Jesus is now climbing a mountain and doing what? Delivering himself the law of God. So the similarities were obvious. It's the Pharisees misunderstand now what Jesus is trying to do. He isn't abolishing or quite literally demolishing the law of God as he's being accused of. He is clarifying. Truly, I say unto you. He isn't like the Pharisees who said, well, this rabbi said this and this rabbi said that and I'm appealing to their authority. Jesus is appealing to his own authority to teach this this day. And he says, I'm not doing away with any of it. I'm fulfilling it. Not just in my obedience, though that's part of it. I'm fulfilling it and correcting in your presence today your wrong understanding of the law. I'm rejecting a superficial understanding of the law. How often does Jesus and other parts of the Gospels say to the Pharisees, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. The outside of the cup, you've cleaned that spotless. It looks great, but the inside of the cup is disgusting. And that's your problem, Pharisees. I'm not changing anything. I'm correcting the mistakes you've made. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, that Christ is the culmination of the law. It doesn't mean that we are now free to disobey it. We're free to obey it in the ways he has always wanted us to and commanded us to. Jesus' words here are very strong. It's as if, to put a paraphrase to it, don't think for one minute, disciples, that I've come to destroy this law. The law and the prophets have been talking about me, and I'm fulfilling what they have said. It's important here, I think, to to give a little aside to this sermon, so maybe start a parenthesis here. This doesn't really fit with the rest, and yet I think it's important to mention. This passage right here is very important for our understanding of what we call the verbal inspiration of Scripture. The Bible is inspired by God. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. It's God-breathed. But some have suggested that the Bible is just only, it contains the Word of God. This passage and others shows us, no, all, all of it is the Word of God. And not just down to the concepts that it teaches down actually to the very words and indeed the very letters. That's how much the Bible is inspired, we might say. And if it's inspired, then there are some necessary consequences. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's authoritative for our life. 
if indeed is it inspired by God. Well, why do I say that? Well, Jesus says that none, none of this is going to pass away until every dot, every iota has been fulfilled. Well, what he's really mentioning there is he's talking about two different things. A, a dot is a yod in Hebrew. It's the smallest of the Hebrew letters. An iota is actually a little, there's a, there's a, this is on several Hebrew letters, but there's a cough. It looks like a C, but on the back of the C is a little tail. That's an iota. <laughs> and so he's saying, down to the fine details, I have come to fulfill this law. Therefore, the Scriptures are important to us, not just in what they conceptually teach, but all the very words and letters. Okay, end of parenthesis. Back, back to your regularly scheduled program here. Okay, how did Jesus fulfill this law? Well, Sinclair Ferguson's uh, commentary on this passage is really helpful to us here, I think. How did Jesus fulfill the law? We did it in four ways. The first way is in correcting the misunderstanding, okay? In His teaching, He fulfills the law. He brings out the real significance of God's commands. It was actually the Pharisees who were abolishing the law and not Jesus. He is showing this to us. Their traditional interpretations were weakening the law. Jesus is strengthening it, and He's doing that in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is giving it its power back. Essentially, what they were doing is rendering the Messiah absolutely unnecessary because it was their suggestion that you actually can do all that the law commands. No, you cannot. <laughs> and Jesus is restoring that. Secondly, Jesus fulfills the law in His perfect obedience. Maybe what you typically think of when you think of the fulfilling of the law by Christ. He says it was His very sustenance to do the will of the Father, and indeed it was. But there's another angle on this second part of his doing it and through his obedience. He is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. He came and did all that the book of Isaiah, namely, said that the Messiah would come and do. He is the fulfillment of what we have hoped for. He's showing himself to be the Messiah. Thirdly, Jesus fulfills the law in his death. He pays the penalty for sin. He is the suffering servant, right? He goes to the cross, and all of our sin is poured onto Him, and He fulfills the law in that death. It's what all the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the offerings of the Old Testament were looking forward to. All that blood that was shed was looking forward to Christ to be the perfect fulfillment of what all that ceremonial system was pointing forward to anyhow. Jesus did it. And so we say of him, as we did a couple of Sundays ago in our affirmation of faith, Christ, our high priest, paid the penalty, and then what did he do? He sat down. The high priest never sat down in the Old Testament because they couldn't, because they had to constantly be shedding blood, offering animals, pouring blood onto an altar, and slaughtering things. Jesus paid the penalty himself with his blood, and he sat down. Why? Because it was finished. He had fulfilled the ceremonial law to its completion. And fourthly, which transitions us to our second point, Jesus now fulfills the law in you and me, in and through His disciples. How does He do that? He does that as we look at Jer Jeremiah chapter 31. I'm going to put my law in your hearts. I'm going to write those things onto your heart so that you now not just do them, you want to do them. You delight in those things. 
It's not to be a law or a rule that we find burdensome, but something that we enjoy doing. Now, that doesn't happen all at once, and it doesn't happen immediately, but again, it's something that we are to grow into. And the only way the Lord will do that in us is by His grace and by the work of His Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is saying, I'm not against the Bible. I'm for the Bible. I've come to fulfill all that it says. Its words are all about me. And of course, here he's talking about the Old Testament, the the law and the prophets. The the Bible for Jesus, as you know, would have been the Old Testament. That's why it's really troubling when you hear popular voices in our culture, such as Andy, Andy Stanley and what he said some years ago in his now infamous book, Irresistible, that he encouraged Christians to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament to disregard the Old Testament because of, and we can admit, there are some difficult stories to understand in the Old Testament. But the solution is not to run away from them or ignore them or pretend like they're not there, but to understand what they're really saying. His suggestion to the church was, stop worrying about the Old Testament, just think about the new and the gospel and the grace that we find there. Well, that's not what Jesus would have done. Jesus didn't have the New Testament. And incidentally, what is all the Old Testament pointing us to anyhow? It's pointing us to Christ. We miss so much of the the importance of what he says here if we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. All the prophecy, all the grace that's anticipated, it's all wonderfully in the Old Testament, and it's in the person of Christ. You know, pay close attention to what Jesus says here. He doesn't say I have come to adhere perfectly to the law as no man ever has. He doesn't say, I have come to give the best and final authoritative teaching on the law. Both of those things are true. Neither of those things does Jesus say. I have come to fulfill the law. What is he saying? I am the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. I have come to be the one that the whole Old Testament has hoped for. You know, sometimes Christians are accused, why do you believe that Jesus is divine? Why do you believe He is the Son of God? He never says that He is. Yes, He does. He says it right here. He implies it in so many ways. Is He the greatest teacher? Of course He is. Is He a very moral person? Yes. But that's not why we trust in Him. We trust in Him because He is the perfect Son of God. And that's what He's saying of Himself here. I have, come, I have come to fulfill it all. The words of C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, continue to be important words. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's not just a moral person. He is the Son of God. And if He is the Son of God, we have three conclusions. He's a liar, and He wasn't really that, but He convinced people that He was. He was a crazy person because who else would say this about themselves, or he is exactly who he said he is, the Lord of all things. So what are we going to choose to believe about him? And maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're very skeptical about who Jesus is and why we make such a big deal about the work of Christ. Well, who do you say that he is? It seems to be these are the only three reasonable conclusions to draw. He lied about who he is, he's crazy and not who he said he was, or he is actually the Lord of all things. And indeed, he is the Lord of all things. 
Or as one commentator said, for Jesus to claim to be the inerrant expositor of the Word who's come to tell everyone what the law really teaches is highly controversial. But to also claim to be the absolute embodiment of God's greatest promises is more than a bit blasphemous if it's not true. But it is true. The Pharisees are asking Jesus, who do you think you are? I'm the very fulfillment of the things that you believe. But they don't see it, of course, do they? I'm exactly who you, Israel, have long wanted to come. I am here. I am He. If He's wrong, then, he's be der- then He is to be rejected, which, of course, the Pharisees do. If not, we must listen to everything that He says. And that has got to be our conclusion. Jesus didn't come wanting to be, listen, how, what a great teacher I am. Of course, He is a great teacher. But if He's only a man, then what He says from this point forward in the sermon is irrelevant to us. But if He is the Son of God, I've got to listen to Him about what He says about my anger, about what He says about my sexuality. I've got to listen to Him about loving my enemies and forgiving the people I don't want to. I've got to listen to Him if He is the Son of God. And He is the Son of God. He is the Creator of all things, and He is the lover of your soul. And so that's why we pay attention. And even though we don't want to forgive that person that we don't want to forgive, we, we must do it because it's for His sake. Secondly, it's the Christian and the law. Jesus is saying clearly, I'm not against the Old Testament. I'm not against morality here. I'm not trying to unhitch you from the Old Testament. I'm bringing reformation. That's quite literally what Jesus is doing here. You have strayed from the true intention of the law, I'm getting us back on track. You have heard that it was said, but I say. You have been told this is what the law is about. It isn't. I'm here to correct what you have heard. And it's only through grace that you're going to be able to do this. It's only through being conformed to my image that you're going to be able to please the Heavenly Father. And Jesus begins to set forth this interpretation. It really is a battle of interpretations. I hope you see that. There's both interpreting here. And as we we examine this, we're going to see how the most learned scholars of the day were profoundly wrong in how they understood the law and the prophets. It should serve as a warning to us. The Bible, we believe, is clear, but nevertheless, the Word of God in every generation becomes distorted and misunderstood in certain ways. And it's important for us to reform ourselves back to the correct understanding. It's not something wrong with the clarity of the Word of God. It's something wrong with us. It's our sinful inclinations and desires. You know, one of the big misunderstandings in the Scriptures today would be this. And quite frankly, it's mainly amongst young people that you see this misunderstanding. It's the Bible is unclear at this point. I can't understand what it says about this thing, therefore no one can understand what it says about this thing. It's what D.A. Carson calls imperial ignorance. I can't understand it, therefore no one can. Or there's so much disagreement about this particular point, let's just all do what we want because it's clear that we can't come to the right conclusion. We can't do that. What does the Scripture say? 
what does it so manifestly teach unto us? And I must believe it because typically what's behind that imperial ignorance is I know exactly what it says and I don't want to do it. That's really the driving force behind this, and I think we can understand that because we can often feel that way as well. It's the inclination in our culture to be antinomian, anti-law. It's what is, there is no transcendent and objective truth. Oh, yes, there is, and we all believe in it, but we're going to say that there isn't so that I can live however I want to. I can be my own God. I can find my identity and worth in whatever I please. This can happen in its crassest form where we assume I have God's grace and I can do whatever I want, or we can just start to diminish what His law so clearly teaches. Because in the end, God will be gracious to us. We presume upon that grace. But Paul won't let us do that, will he? In Romans chapter 6, how can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? An appropriate addition to that statement would be, how can we willingly continue to live in it? It doesn't mean that you'll be perfect, but it does mean if we're following Christ, we want to put to death that sin and to live for Him. We, we want to want that. Then Jesus says something interesting as our passage nears its end. Your righteousness has got to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. Well, how's that possible? Weren't these quite moral men? Well, yes, they were. There's two ways to look at that. And I think both are true, but I think Jesus has an emphasis on the second and not the first. The first way to interpret that would be, you need a righteousness that's not your own, and that's true. You need a righteousness that has been achieved for you by Christ, and it's been imputed to you by faith. So the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees is the righteousness of Christ given to you, and that's in view here. But I think Jesus means exactly what he says, that you need to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Well, how in the world is that possible? You need a righteousness of the heart. It's not just something, they looked great externally, but their heart was so far from him. So our expect, is the expectation to do good? Yes, but it's to want to do good. It's to worship him with our mouth, but are your, is your heart far from him? It's to love him, it's to have an affection for him. And that righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's not just your deeds being good, it's your desires and wants being good. Because you're a new creation, Westminster. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. We were created for good works in Christ Jesus. We were given faith. We were transformed in the whole person. That is a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes are trying to convince the people, you can do the law in yourself. Jesus is saying, no, you cannot. <laughs> you need grace. You need grace to fulfill all of these commands, and I offer it to you. Jesus is extending this law to something that they didn't consider. They thought that murder was just don't kill somebody. It's, it's, the command is so much bigger. It wants to know about your heart. What do you feel about them? Jesus is not contradicting Moses. The Pharisees are contradicting Moses. 
He's taking the law deeper and greater. There's a spirituality here that they were missing. It's sometimes been assumed that Jesus meant something like this, righteousness that the Pharisees had will not possess entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, you, have, you misunderstand righteousness altogether. It is deeds and it is heart. You know we do this all the time too. We assume that the law is only about externals and not about our heart. Tell me where the line is and I'll get right here and I won't go over it. You've already missed the point, right? I don't kill anybody, therefore I'm fine. Well, that's true. Don't kill people, okay? Let's be clear about that. How do you feel about them in your heart? Do you think awful thoughts? Do you desire awful things to happen to them? But it's even more than that, isn't it? Because Jesus is going to go on and say, don't just think bad things, love them, do good for them, want good for them. If you're in a dating relationship, how far is too far, pastor? Tell me, how physical can I be with my boyfriend or girlfriend? Tell me where the line is. You've already missed the point, haven't you? It's not about how sexually active can I be. It's what about your heart? What about the lustful thoughts? What about loving that person? It's, we always, what's the bare minimum requirements, essentially? And Jesus is saying, let me tell you what the, you can do to bring the most glory unto me. It's two completely different ways to look at your Christian life. What's the bare minimum, and then what is the most? Are we always wanting to know where the line is, or are we always asking, how can I bring the most glory unto God? He expects us to take His law seriously, more seriously than they ever had considered before. Why do you not steal? Well, because it's wrong. Why do you not steal? Well, because God has been so good and gracious to you. Why do you not steal? Think about the person. What would happen to them if you did that? You see the steps here? There's the law. What, what does it look like in relation to God? And then what is it going to do to the person if I break that law? The Pharisees were only considered, considering what's the bare minimum I didn't murder somebody. That's great. That's not what the law is talking about. It's also wanting to know about your heart. Why do we give to the church? Well, Christ, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that in his poverty we might be rich. We give of our tithes and offerings, yes, because it's commanded in the Scripture, that's right, but we're to be a cheerful giver unto the Lord because Christ gave his all for us. Why am I faithful in my marriage? Well, I'm supposed to be. That's true. It's a command. And that, that faithfulness is what Christ does for me. Even though I have some traits that are less than desirable, I can be annoying sometimes. I'm messy, quite frankly. And yet, Lord, yet Lauren still loves me and cares for me. But you are faithful to your spouse because you love them. It's for their sake, not just the command itself. I hope you see the depth that Jesus is adding here. This is what we're, we were created for. And Jesus is here bringing together these kingdom blessings and these kingdom requirements. So where is your heart this morning? Is it just like the Pharisees, you are grudgingly obeying God, or are you delighting in His law? Seeing that His law is not just a way to glorify Him, but it is a way to love others as well. J. Gresham Machen concludes, 
A low view of law leads to legalism. A high view of law makes a man seek after grace. And that's right. Do you ever struggle with this? I bet you do. How do I bring together this law and gospel in my life? Do you ever throw your hands up in frustration? You see the sinfulness in your life that so easily entangles you? What did Paul do? What wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And no doubt he went out the next day and he thought the same thing. And then what did he do? He ran back again to the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what we do. We go out, as you will, I trust, from this sanctuary this morning, strengthened by Christ. And then you're going to be really discouraged this afternoon. And then you're going to go back to him again. Lord, help me. Help me to not just do that which you teach, but desire that which you teach. Help me to love others. And then you're going to be discouraged because you're going to see the sin that so easily entangles. And then you're going to go back to the cross again. And you're going to be reminded of what he's done. Brian Chappell, who was our Reformation Service speaker this weekend, he has a wonderful book entitled Holiness by Grace. I'm going to read you a story that he gives in that book as I close. Some time ago, this is Chapel speaking, I had the privilege of visiting a board member of Covenant Seminary in the hospital. His name was Jim, and he was dying of cancer, and he knew it. When the cancer was first discovered, Jim said to me with a smile, you know, I always wondered how the Father would take me home. He had an absolute trust in the goodness of his God, no matter the difficulty. And still, Jim's dealing with cancer was never a matter of resignation. Far from it. He was in a race. And Jim raced to finish a book on the history of his family and the family business that recounted the grace of God in his life. He didn't write because he believed that his writing would make God love him more, but because he was so filled with a loving zeal for the Savior. Jim entitled his book, Nothing Happened by Accident. He deeply believed that the caring character of God revealed in the sacrifice of Christ was operative in every stage of life. I've never met a man more zealous for the honor of his Savior, nor more certain of the cause for his zeal. Jim did not believe that any of his deeds would gain him one more ounce of God's love. That's not why he so zealously gave his life to God's service. He threw himself into homage of the Savior with such energy and joy because he so loved the God who saved him through faith in a great mercy not of human origin. Gratitude compelled Jim to serve his God, and the resultant joy that radiated from the heart made it so obvious to all that though he was dying, he was one of the most most well-persons you could ever hope to meet. Faith in God's mercy brought joy through the tears, because it always does. May each of us learn to embrace this faith that is the health of our souls and the joy of our hearts and the truest source of God's obedience. Those last two sentences really bring this whole sermon together, I think. Faith in God's mercy brought joy through the tears, because it always does. May each of us learn to embrace this faith that is the health of our souls, the joy of our hearts, and the truest source of Christian obedience. Why do we obey? Because Christ obeyed for us. And now he intends for us as his new creations that have put the old behind and we embrace the new that has come, we do it for his sake. We do it for the sake of others. And we pray every day that, oh Lord, will you help me to see your law is good because I know that you love me and that you care for me. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For the Sermon Archive, go to wpcjc.org 
forward slash resources forward slash sermon hyphen archive. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible, the Holy Bible, English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers, used by permission, all rights reserved. ESV texts may not be quoted in any publication made available to the public by a Creative Commons license. ESV may not be translated in whole or in part into any other language. Verbal credit must also be given to the ESV.